This is Chris. Welcome to episode 231 of X-Lapsed, where uh, I'm recovering from some uh, invasive dental procedures here. Uh, Last time this happened, um, I didn't feel any pain or any discomfort, really. Uh, That was on the right side of my face. Uh, Well, yesterday I had the left side of my face done, and, uh, well, it it really hurts. (laughs) This is very, very unpleasant to uh, try and speak, so... uh, I don't know. We'll we'll see how this goes. We will uh we will see how this goes. Um now today we're going to be starting off uh something of a sandwich, uh, a teeny Howard sandwich of sorts here. Today we have Excalibur. Next episode is Way of X, the delicious insides, the meat of this sandwich. And then uh, the following episode is X Corp. So uh yeah, we will uh we'll see how this works. Um let's get into today's book. This is Excalibur, Volume 4, Number 22, out of September 2021, to cover date. The story is called Treasures of Britain, written by Teeny Howard, with art by Marcus Toe. Colors, Eric Garshaniga, letters, VCs, Ariana Marr, designs Tom Muller, head of X for now, Hickman. Edits, Bezo White Sabolsky, cover price, four bucks, went on sale July 14 of 2021. And, uh, stop me if you heard this before, but, uh, we open in Otherworld, because of course we do. Now, we're not in, you know, King Jamie the Weird's uh, assembly hall. We're not in Saturnine's castle yet. Um, We're actually at Blightspoke. Now, this is a place we don't see all that often, so it's neat to see it, I suppose. This is the place, if you remember, uh, where Wolverine and the Creepy Summoner did battle during Exit 10s here. It was, like, very esoteric, very... Is avant-garde the right right word to use here? It's a very weird place, right? Now, it's that weird, poisonous place, right? The, the ground is odd. And so, we've got Beast here taking some soil samples to perform further study on. And he doesn't seem near as evil here as he does over in X-Force, which is probably just because our X-Writers don't read the other X-Books that they're not involved in. Also, Excalibur's here. Stands to reason it is their book. Then, Carmen Sandiego shows up. Well... It's actually Gia Whitechapel, the sheriff of Blightspoke. Um, I think we've met her once or twice before, but she looks a lot like Carmen Sandiego. Now, her gimmick here is that she talks like an old-timey sheriff, and uh, she's not keen on Excalibur taking samples of her turf, and so she and her posse roll up on our heroes. She fires a shot at Gambit with her rifle, and uh, Gambit is somehow able to deflect it, like he like slaps it out of the air, kind of, I I don't know. I don't know. I I think we're just supposed to accept that that happened. Then, they spend a couple of pages arguing about whether or not to allow Hank to take the sample, and Gia ultimately relents. Uh, Very good use of two pages here. But she does warn the team that there are other folks running around Blightspoke with a bit of a mad-on for the witch breed, and, uh, well, they're not going to be firing warning shots like she did. So when you fire directly at someone, right, who just so happens to somehow be able to deflect the bullet, that's just a warning shot. Okay. And um, I gotta let you all know, if you're already tired of filleting Neil Gaiman by calling mutants witch breed over and over again, you might want to skip this issue. Because uh, I think we could start a fatal drinking game out of this one here. Take a drink every time you hear the word witch breed. You ain't gonna make it out the other end. Anyway, Gia and the gang ride off into the Saturn set. It's not a sunset, it's Saturn. Uh, We shift scenes to the hatchery at Krakoa. Here we see Pete Wisdom popping out of his gold ball. Now, if you recall, 
He was sacrificed by the Coven of Kaaba last issue in order to free Morgan Le Fay from that weirdo Jamie Braddock's basement. And I tell you, that weirdo Jamie Braddock's basement sounds like a great name for a vintage clothing store. If we ever start a, a merch shop for uh, this program, I think we need a that weirdo Jamie Braddock's basement uh, logos made up. Anyway, Megan is here to welcome him back. So, um, Professor X isn't there, Jean's not there, it's Megan. Okay. And uh, she welcomes him back and somehow knows that A, he was sacrificed, and B, that it was done to bring Morgan Le Fay back. Was there like a note stapled to his body? Because she really shouldn't know this, right? I mean, she can know he's dead, because he's dead. But to know that, oh yeah, he was sacrificed to bring Morgan Le Fay back by the coven. I I gotta assume they just stapled a note to his body. It's gotta be. Now, she also calls Pete Darling a bunch of times, which, I don't know, seems kind of weird. Maybe this is the ignorant American in me, but I think I've only ever seen Patsy and Adina call everyone Darling. I don't know if this is a real thing British, English, or UK-ish people do. I mean, let me know. Let me know. Anyway... Megan tells Pete that they can no longer go back to the UK due to Reuben What's-His-Face becoming ambassador and breaking the Krakoan Treaty. And Pete lets out a no that shakes the heavens. So I guess it's safe to say he isn't a fan of the news. Again, though, um, why is the British government appealing to a friggin' coven of witches? I I I really want to dig deeper into this, but I won't because I don't want to be accused of hating on Teeny Howard's work. Anyway, double-page spread of roll call and cred. Our characters include Betsy Britton, Gambit, Jubilee, Richter, Megan, Pete Wisdom, and Saturnine. So back to comics, and who's ready for some hot otherworld government in action? Me neither, but we gotta. We are at the Starlight Citadel, where movers and shakers from all the fairs and fowls have gathered, basically so Merlin can spell out the next story we're going to be subjected to. Now, Saturnine and Betsy Britton are at the center of this, and her royal whiness's fish-faced aide is there, too. Now, we see representatives of the fairs and fowls, so uh, how about we roll-call them? From stage left to stage right, we got piles of glop that I think are supposed to be furies from the Everforge. We got some vampires from Sevelith, no death, though. Some bee people from the Hot Hive. That weirdo Jamie Braddock and Betsy's beautiful blonde British brother Brian Braddock representing Avalon. Former original horsemen, Famine and Pestilence, representing Dryador, which is, of course, the kingdom that they took over at the very start of X of Tens. Roma without her widow's peak. Merlin from the Fae. And Carmen San Diego. Now, we are missing a few kingdoms here. Uh, most notably, we got no Jim Jaspers, which is unfortunate. So, Merlin stands up to speak. He says, uh, witch breed around 11 times, and uh, he's kind of ticked off that he's no longer the omniversal guardian of Otherworld. King Jamie the Weird wonders aloud how he lost the gig to Saturnine at all, and, uh, well, unfortunately, that's going to be a story for another time, and I'm sure it'll make for a scarily interesting tale at that. Merlin then basically threatens Saturnine that he's going to take back his spot, which, I mean, hmm, is there anyone reading or listening that actually cares about who's in charge of Otherworld? Does this really affect anyone besides Merlin and Saturnine? Uh, I don't know. He finally shuts up, and we shift scenes over to Betsy and Saturnine. Now, Betsy is asked to check in on Merlin and see just what he's got planned here, because, I mean, they don't take threats lightly. Now, she promises, Saturnine, that is, promises to tell Betsy how she came to take the gig from Merlin once the dust settles, which, again, you know, sounds like a threat, doesn't it? Okay, let's shift scenes. We're over to Pete Wisdom, who's hanging out on Braddock Island while looking longingly at uh, the England. He's uh, quite sad, you see. Now, I suppose we could discuss uh, the logistics of literally stealing land, like great big plots of land from a country and then saying it's no longer that country's land, uh, like Richter did here with uh, uh, Braddock, uh, Braddock Island here, taking it literally from England, right? And suddenly it's no longer England's property? I, I don't know. Whatever the case here, Pete's there, he's sad, he's pouting, and he walks over to a tree that has a bunch of photos hanging from it, and he pulls a few down. Why? Well, this'll make sense a little bit later on. From here we go to an info page, and it's a letter from Danny and Shan from the New Mutants, uh, recollecting their time in the Holy Republic of Fae, 
Of course, this was from the recent New Mutants two-parter where they chased a rabbit and were told to buzz off by the that Blue Jersey Devil Kid. Back to comics and back to Otherworld. Now Excalibur, they're in Merlin's dungeon rescuing a bunch of prisoners. They then break into Merlin's chambers. And while the way that they do this doesn't quite make sense, I still kind of like it as a gimmick. Um, now here, the story is that Gambit stole a bunch of uh, tarot cards from Saturnine. We saw him steal some stuff from a closet back before Exitens. I think that's where he also got like the that gem that belonged to Kandra, the external, which led to the external gate. Something like that. It's been a long time since I've read it, and I've read a lot in the interim, but I know he and Rogue stole some stuff from a closet, and among that stuff was these tarot cards. Now, these tarot cards have uh, X-Men characters drawn on them, and we know that Saturnine has cards with X-Men on them. We had Cable was the Fool and all that kind of stuff. Now, the one that he grabs here has Longshot's picture on it, and so Gambit charges it and throws it at the door, and uh, he claims that this card represents luck, because, I mean, it's long shot, no duh. Uh, bada bing, bada boom, it busts the lock and opens a door. I don't know if Longshot's picture on the thing had anything to do with that, or if any old card that Gambit charged up would have done the same thing, but we'll allow it. And, uh, again, we're not sure how Gambit would know this. Uh, maybe he's been practicing with these cards off-panel. Maybe this is going to be the story of the rumored Chris Claremont Gambit series. Maybe it's just fan service. Whatever it is, I kind of dig it. I kind of dig it. Uh, now, let's head inside the chambers, where we find a covered well. Now, inside it are the waters of all reality, whatever that is. Um, now, Betsy takes the lid off the well and can see some faces reflected in it, though I couldn't tell you who or what they belong to. Uh, Merlin busts into the room, says, Which breed another skatey 800 times, and then attacks our heroes. Richter uses his powers to burrow the team deep under Merlin's keep to a convenient train station down below. Gambit then uses his powers to literally charge up the train. Okay, okay, fair enough. Uh, back to Krakoa. Now, Pete Wisdom awaits some good news. Now, you see those pictures that he plucked from the tree on Braddock Island were of four of his old friends who were dead. And uh, they were psychics, now they're mutants. I don't know if they were always mutants or not. Um, and so, let's get to it. He has them resurrected via some gold balls, and they are his old strike teammates, because, well, we need another acronymed group, right? Yeah. Well, so long as this doesn't result in a third ongoing Teeny Howard series, I suppose we'll, we'll allow it and just roll with it. Now, by the way, strike stands for Special Tactical Reserve for International Key Emergencies. And how about we introduce them via info page? It's the Agents of Strike. Now, Strike would eventually become the RCX, and then uh, they had to make it Warren Ellis cool by calling it Black Air after that. The members we got here are Tom Lennox, who goes by the name Gast. His first appearance, and actually all four of their first appearances, is uh, Daredevil's number three from March 1983 cover date. They were all created by Alan Moore and Alan Davis. Uh, Gast was killed by Jim Jasper's Beatles. Okay. Allison Double goes by the name Albedo. And she died in a car wreck, which actually never happened on panel, so this is new information to us. Kevin Mulhern goes by Xanth, and he was gunned down by the Slaymaster. Finally, Minnie Ripperton, I mean Vicky Repion, uh, goes by Rubido, and uh, she was also killed by the Slaymaster. Now, the characters here are listed as being... They're, like, described by their humors, which I think is, like, phlegm, like colors of phlegm. It's very... Kind of gross? I don't know. Maybe that's leading somewhere. Maybe it's just flavor. And I, I mean flavor in the like the metaphorical sense, not the literal sense, because that's, uh, that's up there with uh, Dr. Nemesis's mushroom head. Um, now, and I thought these characters were just psychics, not actually mutants. So maybe this is a little bit of retroactive continuity. Maybe I am misremembering. Whatever the case... It is what it is. We got these characters. Bada-bing, bada-boom. Now we wrap up the issue back in Merlin's dungeon, where we find out that he's been keeping King Arthur prisoner. <sighs> Anybody else looking forward to seeing where this goes? Yeah, me neither. But uh, we'll be there when it does. That's where we leave it. Next episode, thank goodness, Way of X. Now before I try and talk a little bit about this issue, because... Like uh, with the previous episode, I, I kind of gave my thoughts as I went through the synopsis here. 
I do want to make it clear that, uh, well, I did have a little bit of fun with this issue, uh, you know, isn't poking fun of the issue. Relatively speaking, it was uh, fairly decent. I mean, uh, you guys know that I am not a fan of Otherworld. I'm very, very tired of Otherworld, and for whatever reason, this book refuses to leave Otherworld. Now, if you were to ask me, that's a sign that this book doesn't need to be a book. You know, if we need an entire X-Men book off to the side so far to where it like has very little to do with anything that's going on in the rest of the X-Run, it may not necessarily need to exist. Maybe someone can do us a solid and like maybe slip this under like Jason Aaron's door or something, and maybe he'll read about Otherworld and decide, ooh, I want to steal this from the X-Men and make it an Avengers thing too, like he did with the Phoenix, and then we can stop reading about Otherworld altogether. That's probably not going to happen, though. Um, so how about we just don't talk about Otherworld here? Because all I'm going to do is complain about it. You guys know that it's a Chris problem. I am making sure to say this is a Chris problem, so I'm not just indiscriminately hating on something. This is just, you know, um, your mileage may vary sort of a situation here. If you dig Otherworld, you're going to dig this. If you don't, it's going to be a little bit of a slog. And there's nothing wrong with either point of view. So instead, let's go back to Earth here and talk about, well, some of the problems I have with those scenes. Um, Pete Wisdom being brought back to life and Megan, uh, knowing how he died, why he died, where he died, uh, she shouldn't know that stuff. You know, that's just some stuff that, uh, when you stop and think about it, it really, really pulls you out of the story. If you don't stop and think about it, well, then it doesn't really matter. Uh, unfortunately, I spend way too many hours a day with these books, and so something like this sticks out to me, and I kind of sink my teeth into it and can't let it go because, I mean, it's the old X-Lapse trope here where we're reading an issue of Excalibur, and I feel like we miss something. And, I mean, not every scene needs to be seen, but maybe this one should have been. You know, where did, how did they find his body? Where did they find his body? Why did they find his body? I don't know. I don't know. And Megan calling him darling a bunch was odd <laughs> as well let's keep it with pete wisdom and his uh his time staring longingly at uh at the england um i i don't understand eminent domain i suppose i i don't know that you could just take big old swaths of land move them and just say that they're yours now they don't they no longer belong to who they belong to while they were still attached is that something i can do like can i can I go into my neighbor's yard, like, knock down the wall between our yards and rebuild the wall, like, a few feet out and say, hey, you know, this is mine now? I, I, I don't know that that's uh, something that can happen here. But then again, I mean, we're dealing with a government that's run by a coven of witches, so I suppose, uh, I suppose anything's possible. But I think this is uh, fairly indicative of how we're supposed to accept Teeny Howard's work. Uh, we're not supposed to think about it. We're supposed to just accept what we're told and not question anything. These are just the rules of this world, and whether or not they make any sort of sense or feel organic or feel natural, well, that'll all be damned. We're not supposed to question that. We just take what we get, we're given and we accept it. And maybe that's something I ought to try. I, sh I should just try accepting what we get in these stories and not, not think about it. You know, I don't know. If we're told that a government ceded power to witches, then we just accept it. If we're told that taking a chunk of land and making it an island and claiming ownership of it makes it so, we accept it. If Gambit has the ability to charge a train and make it go, then uh, well, then we accept it. Let's let's keep it with Gambit here, because I, as I mentioned during the synopsis, I really liked the gimmick of the tarot cards here, and I could actually see that making for a fun solo Gambit story. I don't know if it would be a prolonged solo Gambit story. I don't know if that would make a good ongoing, but as far as a limited series is concerned, I think it could be a lot of fun having Gambit working with these tarot cards here because he could basically partner up with any character's powers, right? And, I mean, it kind of... You know, when you stop and think about it here, Rogue was on this team, right? And Rogue's power is taking other people's powers, and, and of course memories, but I mean the powers are what would be the most useful in, in battle and in situations like where you gotta bust through a door or have some sort of espionage. Rogue will take powers. We don't have Rogue on the team anymore. 
So now we've got Gambit, who's got these cards that will enact powers of various characters here. I think that's um, maybe a way of making Gambit a bit more uh, roguish, you know, pardon the pun, in the uh, in this series here, and serving both roles. And I mean, I could be reading in, into it completely wrong here, but I mean, when you, when you flash a long shot card and suddenly you're using luck powers, uh, not in a permanent way, but in a, you know, this is your move this turn, which, I mean, we do talk a lot about how some of these X-Books are very role-playing game-ish. <laughs> and uh, there are a lot of card-battling games out there nowadays, or I guess for the past 20, 30 years. Uh, I just, I'm just scared of that corner of the comic shop, so I don't know much about them. But uh, maybe this is a play on that sort of thing here, where he's drawing the long-shot card, and this gives him, grants him this power. It's, I don't know. I, I just think this is kind of fun. I like the idea of there being... You know, Saturnine having these cards with all these characters on it because maybe she just doesn't know who's who's going to visit and needs to have them on hand here. I wouldn't mind actually seeing these tarot cards produced, you know? get Give us a deck of these cards. That might be fun just to have as a uh, collector's item or as a curiosity so that in 15, 20 years we can find them in the bottom of our sock drawer and be like, what in the hell are these X-Men tarot cards all about? But yeah, I like that gimmick here, and if uh, Chris Claremont is doing a Gambit series, I wouldn't mind seeing this played out there. Uh, while we're on the high notes here, Marcus Tozart, still phenomenal. Um, I think maybe a little bit of haste with the uh, the big Starlight Citadel scene where I think those are supposed to be Furies in the corner there, but they just look like globs, you know? And I mean, Furies are kind of nebulous in their shape, so I guess we could excuse it, but... Had they been a little bit more instantly recognizable as Furies, I, I would have liked it a little bit more. But if that's my only complaint, I mean, that's not really a complaint at all, is it? I guess overall, I didn't love this, but in the scheme of Excalibur, uh, this was definitely one of the better issues that we've covered, especially of late. And it all goes back to what I said earlier here. This is going to be a uh, your mileage may vary sort of thing. If you are a huge fan of Otherworld, you're gonna, you know, you're gonna be into this. If not, you might still dig it, but it might, uh, it might be a little bit of a tougher road to hoe to get to the actual meat of the issue. But uh, I think that's all I got to say. Uh, how about we hop into the mailbag? Let's kick things off with Damien, who's talking about Wolverine number eleven. Now, Damien opens with vampires, meh, <laughs> which is about right, isn't it? The worst part of listening to this episode was hearing you say that it looks like there'll be a few more issues of Wolverine featuring vampires. Why is Benjamin Percy def des de deliberately, easy for me to say, trying to annoy me? If that's the case, he's trying to annoy uh, a lot of us, I think, here. Um, yeah, the vampire gimmick is... I mean, we, we started this vampire story with Wolverine number one, like a year ago. <laughs> it's over a year ago with the COVID hiatus. Um... Yeah, this one is running on fumes at this point, and just with the knowledge that it's going to continue for a little bit is uh, not great. Not great. Um, Damien continues, How does this sell better than Hellions? It must be completionists who just file them away without reading them. And I think that that has a lot to do with it. I'm sure there are folks out there who have full runs of Wolverine who don't want to break up their run, and they just keep buying them to keep buying them out of habit. I'm also sure that uh, considering the two highest-selling books in the uh, line here are X-Men and Wolverine, that there are folks out there who will only buy the flagship books, you know? Um, and I think if we look at the line here, the flagships could be considered X-Men and Wolverine. And I actually do know a few people who only buy. Either they only buy X-Men, or if they buy two books, it's going to be X-Men and Wolverine. So, yeah, it's unfortunate, but... It's just uh, the way things go. Damien continues, At least the art was pleasing. I've liked Scott Eaton since his run on Dr. Fate, which was a long, long time ago. I think his first issue was a War of the Gods tie-in, so it must be 30 years now. I, he can't make me care, but at least there's some craftsmanship in the book. This just isn't for me. And yeah, for the most part, actually, I think I completely agree. I was going to say for the most part I agree, but I'm pretty sure I completely agree here. If I weren't doing this show... I I couldn't say with much certainty that I'd be buying Wolverine right now. Um, I might be buying it, just like you mentioned earlier, and filing it away because I've got a run. 
but uh, I don't know that I'd be reading it, and I certainly wouldn't be putting any thought into it. You know, I'm hard-pressed to think of the last time that there was a story in uh, the Wolverine ongoing that made it feel like something that needed to be read, needed to be analyzed, needed to be discussed. I suppose, you know, good or bad, we can go back to Old Man Logan from uh, the Mark Miller run back in the day. I, I can't think of very many stories from Wolverine's many, many ongoings that uh, stand out as being stories that needed to be told. Maybe maybe folks out there can help me out here. Tell me your uh, your favorite Wolverine ongoing stories here. So, I mean, not even uh, Weapon X happened in uh, in the Wolverine ongoing. That was Marvel Comics Presents. I, I don't know. I, I guess I'll, I'll leave that to you all to uh, let me know. But thanks so much for writing in, Damien, and uh, I know it's not always easy to write in on, on Wolverine Day, but I definitely appreciate it. Uh, next up, Evan talking about Marauders number 20. Now he says, I don't know if this is actual irony or 90s pop song irony, but this might have been my favorite issue of Marauders so far, which I haven't generally liked as much as you or some others in the X-Lapse community. It had the kind of warmth and heart I thought was missing from previous issues in lieu of violence and viciousness. I attribute that to Duggan's talent, not the fact that it was earned. And yes, this was a very heartfelt issue here, but uh, I'll let Evan finish his thought before uh, before chiming in with my own here. Uh, Evan continues, Storm hasn't felt like a member of the Marauders team so much as a member of the Marauders cast. This issue demonstrated what the Marauders can and should be more so than any I could remember. Your mileage may vary. And it did so in the format of an episode of Community, where they did a clip show of clips from episodes that never happened. And, uh, A, Community is one of those shows that everybody's telling me to check out, and I've never checked it out yet, so, uh, might have to bump that one up the queue. You guys know that I'm very far behind on many things pop culture. Uh, the wife and I just barely watched Parks and Recreation, which, uh, was another show that people were like, hey, you should watch this show. And it's like, yeah, we'll get to it, and we never did. So, we finally did, and we loved it. So, uh, maybe, uh, maybe Community will be one of our next projects. But, uh, to Evan's point here. And for folks who haven't read Marauders number 20 or maybe have forgotten what it was about, uh, this is the one where Storm is leaving the team. A team that she's really never shown as being a part of anyway. So they're on the boat. They're having, like, this party to say farewell to her. Of course, she's headed to become the Queen of Mars. We didn't know that at the time. We had a sneaking suspicion, but we didn't know it at the time. All we knew was that she was leaving. She was leaving Earth. She was leaving Krakoa. She was leaving her spot in the Quiet Council. She was leaving, is what I'm trying to say here. Um, And this story did a really good job of uh, letting us know what we would be losing. But unfortunately, in so doing, it really shined a light on how much was missing from this series up to this point here. How Storm, as Evan put it here, never really felt like a member of the the team. She was a member of the cast, for sure. She would show up, she was there to witness things. But she never felt like... It wasn't like Bobby. It wasn't like Pyro. It wasn't like Kitty. But this issue showed that she could have been so much more to this team. You know? And uh, I love how Evan uh, worded that there. How this didn't really feel earned so much. And, uh, you know, talking about earning story beats is something that, uh, that Reggie and I would talk about a whole lot. Because, you know, writers, they want to get to their big ta-da. You know? Um... When a house looks like a house, you could tell yourself you built a house. But if you didn't build a foundation, one stiff breeze is going to knock it over. So you didn't actually build or earn something. You just showed us an end product that we didn't see get built, you know. So while I quite enjoyed this, the story of this issue, it made me realize that, uh, I mean, what we could have had all along. And I, and I am a fan of this book. But... This issue stood out so much that it showed me that uh, it's, despite it being really, really good and enjoyable, at least to me, it's still something of an underachiever. Which, I mean, that's not really a complaint, (laughs) because what we're getting is still quality, but, you know, you always want what you can't get, right? Or I suppose just plain didn't get. But in any event, thank you so much for writing in on that issue, Evan. Uh, Next up, Meal talking about Marvel's Voices Pride, which was an episode I was petrified to put out because I was afraid, um, I was afraid my take on it was going to be, uh, not well received and coming from a point of view that, uh, maybe ought not be, uh, analyzing such stories. But let's get to Meal's message here. 
Neil says, I do enjoy this book, probably more than most people do, but that has to do with the fact that I'm so tired of very little representation, so a book that's just about queer people. Yeah, it's sad, but yeah. I remember your question about the short Colossus story and whether that's something or how people talk about their sexuality. As I'm only one person, I couldn't tell you how every queer person is, but personally, my friends and I do have conversations like that. Also, Prodigy's major crushes, easy for me to say, on Colossus and Emma Frost makes so much sense, as those are two favorites in the queer X-Men fan community from what I've seen. Now, the story that Meal's discussing there is one between Prodigy and Speed, where they're, uh, what are they having, like a slice of pizza? They're on the corner in New York City having a slice of pizza, and uh, they're talking about their sexuality. To which I asked if that's how people talk, because I'm not around people, <laughs> like, ever. So I don't know these things. So definitely thank you for uh, for clarifying that a bit here. Now, as far as the representations um, concerned here, you guys know me if you've been listening to the Marvel's Voices specials that I've been doing here. I think we're up to four or five of them at this point. I always preface by saying that I want as many people involved in comics as possible. You know, I want comics to grow. I, I, I want to stop the bleeding, you know. I want comics to prosper. I want the art form and language of comics to be a viable career path and not a stepping stone to some Netflix or Hulu or Amazon Prime thing. You know, I want people in comics who want to write comics. And that said, I want everyone who wants to be involved in comics to be involved in comics because the more people, the more voices, the better. Now, what Marvel's Voices has done right is give people the opportunity to strut their stuff, right? They, they give people who may not get the chance to do an ongoing or a limited series or a one-shot, the opportunity to ply their trade, to write a story, to draw a story. It might be a short subject. It might be an extremely short subject. Now, that's what Marvel's Voices does right. What it does wrong is, well, the same thing. Marvel can talk about representation until the cows come home, but actions speak louder than words, and it speaks louder than virtue signaling. And we talked a bit about this last episode when we talked about Substack and how some A-list creators are going to be leaving Marvel and DC to concentrate on their own creator-owned stuff over at Substack. And I see that as the opportunity for some of these writers, some of these artists, some of these creators who were involved in the Marvel's Voices initiative to maybe get a grander stage to ply their trade on here. So instead of it being like, oh, Donny Cates is writing six top-tier Marvel books and Al Ewing's writing seven of them and Bendis is writing 45 DC comics, maybe, well, maybe we get some new blood in there. Maybe we can take some of these creators who are talented, who are talented, they're untested, but they're talented, and give them more than a two- or three-page insert in an overpriced anthology book that, as much as I hate to say it, is going to be kind of divisive. Right? I mean, anytime you put out a social statement, you're going to get clapback. You're going to get folks who absolutely love it. You're going to get folks who absolutely hate it. You're going to get folks who will consider it nothing more than virtue signaling. You're going to get folks who love it because it's virtue signaling. Now, I'm pretty sure I prefaced my discussion of uh, the Pride book with uh, not wanting people to confuse the, the message with the delivery. Because the message is very, very important. There's room in comics for everybody. You know, everybody should feel welcome in comics as a creator, as any sort of creator, and as any sort of fan. Now, comics is uh, an industry that's been dying since the day it was born. You know, every few years, I mean, every day, people are saying, okay, well, this is it for comics. Comics are going away. And they haven't. And before it was because our, you know, corporate overlord stepped in, it was because of the will of... Not very many people just keeping keeping with the hobby. And so the more people involved at all levels is, uh, is definitely a good thing for the longevity of the business. Which is part of the reason why I think I'd like to see the overpriced anthology model, at least how they're doing it now, maybe evolve into something else. You know, one of the watchwords when we talk about the Voices Project is X-Men Unlimited. And in my time doing this show, I've gone from someone who would shudder at the thought of there being an X-Men Unlimited again to someone who thinks they'd be quite the proponent of an X-Men Unlimited uh, for many reasons, one of which is to give uh, untested creators a place to uh, to actually write an incontinuity story that doesn't feel like 
an afterthought, doesn't feel like a retcon, doesn't feel like something that could be ignored, maybe give an actual opportunity to something that could, in theory, take off. A new character, a concept, an idea that could be taken into the main books and maybe help a person star rise a little bit. I suppose it doesn't help things that Marvel seems to be one of the more antagonistic toward their fan um, companies out there. And I mean, this might just be my own over-familiarity or belief to have over-familiarity with the company, but I feel like part of Marvel's mission statement is to prove the fans wrong at every single turn, where it's like they'll launch a book that's based on nothing more than a social issue, and they'll advertise it as such, and then they'll get angry at people who don't want to read a book that's based on a social issue. And they'll punish the people who do want to follow the characters in that book by making it less about the character and more about whatever issue it is they want to push. So... I don't know. I think I'm talking myself in circles here, so I will uh, I will zip it and get back into Meal's message. Uh, Meal continues. I also really enjoyed the Destiny and Mystique one-shot. I found it very fun, and that final shot was very good. Another one I really liked was the Bobby and Magneto one. Was it out of character? Yeah. Did it make any sense? No. However, is baby Bobby crushing on his straight friend really relatable? To a sad degree, yes. And Bobby with Magneto's helmet is so adorable. And that actually brings me to another point that I think I brought up during the discussion here, um, where I was complaining about how overpriced this book was, because I feel like this book does have relatable aspects to it, but to younger people who probably wouldn't be willing to drop $10 on, on this book. It's why I said that this book should have been released in chapters for free. If Marvel really believed in the project, they would have made this as accessible as possible to as many people as possible because a $10 price tag, that's not an impulse buy. That's definitely not an impulse buy. And I didn't remember reading anything about the profits of this book going to any any particular cause, so this was just pocket filler for, for all I know. I mean, I could have missed a press release. I don't really follow with, uh, you know, the vaunted comics press, as I'm known to say. So... For all I know, this was going to a very, very good cause, and if that's the case, mea culpa, I'm sorry. But I totally agree with Meal's point here, that uh, that is a very relatable thing, and, and Bobby with the Magneto's helmet was, was a cute little scene. Of course, we did just cover the issue that that was uh, trying to evoke over an Essential X lapsed, which went a completely different way than that. So really, of course, it doesn't make sense, but Meal points that out here as well here, so we could just look at that as an alternate, an alternate story, I suppose. As for Mystique and Destiny, the story wasn't bad. It just wasn't what it could have been. I mean, we do have a lot of Mystique and Destiny stuff going on right now in the current yearbooks. And this could have been used to build to that. Talk about taking a $10 book and making it something that people, completionists, are going to want. This was an opportunity to do that. And you could have told Justice Touching a story while making it 100% more relevant to the, to the Inferno story that we're about to enter into. You know, I, I talked about the first Marvel Voices uh, issue, where I picked that thing up because the Children of the Atom made their first appearance, right? I mean, that's something that actually made it out of the book, right? Though, in fairness, we do get the uh, first appearance of Somnus in this issue, which might lead to something. It, it did say that next summer we were going to see Somnus, so... Fingers crossed that we do. We'll see how that works out here. Uh, Meal wraps up with, overall, because I'm a cheesy person, I really enjoyed it. I, I wouldn't say that. I mean, it was a cute scene. Um, just uh, like I said, uh, we all come from things uh, via a different prism here. And I am so wrapped up in being, you know, a fake-ass comics historian or whatever that uh, I see things through the prism of, does this line up with continuity? And, I mean, it's silly, it's petty, it's dumb, it's childish, but it's the way I am sometimes. <laughs> and so when I see, like, wow, this story didn't go the way it did in the in the originals, uh, that's what takes me out of it. As a story in and of itself, there's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with it. If this was an alternate universe take, that's perfectly fine. But uh, in the 616, this story didn't happen. Mill <clears throat> um, continues. However, if Jesse Drake doesn't show up, I'm going to punch somebody. Now, I actually had to do a little bit of research on Jesse Drake here. Um, I did not know the character. Apparently, Jesse Drake showed up in Marvel Comics Presents number 150, and in the following issue was revealed to be uh, transgender, the first 
openly transgender character in the Marvel Universe. And, well, they did make an appearance in the Pride book, which I totally missed out on. Um, uh, Jesse had shown up in the Black Cat story, which I didn't read for the show and I didn't cover for the show. So... I guess maybe we're going to have to do that. Um, So maybe when we discuss the next Voices project, um, I will put the Jesse Drake story in there. Jesse Drake is a mutant, so um, yes, they are uh, definitely relevant to the show. And uh, I apologize for uh, leaving them out of the Pride issue. I just uh, didn't know. So thank you so much for enlightening me on that there, Meal, and uh, we will definitely make that right. But uh, Meal wraps up with, so until Catherine Summers comes back to life... Be my next lapsed. To which I would say, let's not give them any ideas. But uh, thank you so much for writing in there on uh, the Pride book. That, Like I said, that was one that I was a bit nervous about. So it means so much that you take the time to uh, write in on that episode. Now next up, we have a multimedia message from our friend Jesse. We got a voicemail and a letter. So let's hop into the voicemail right now. Hey, Chris, this is Jesse. I just wanted to comment a bit about X-Men number one. So if you haven't read it yet, skip this for right now. But I don't know why I'm so excited about this title, about this this new jump on, maybe because we actually have an X-Men team this time and we know we have an X-Men team uh, versus just guessing that there was an X-Men team with a rotating roster. But there are a few things about the book that I just really enjoy just having – Having a new group together, some some members that have never been in X-Men, like Sink, uh, just having him rejoin somebody that has been missing uh, from the X-Books for a very long time. And then just seeing how they're all working together in tandem with their abilities and stuff. I wonder if Shadow King helps them uh, learn how to do that. But uh, just having X-23 back in a full title, and, and you know, I know that she's going by Wolverine, uh, but there's too many Wolverines, so I'm going to still call her X-23. Not a huge fan about, you know, with Cyclops and with Sunfire and Jean Grey. Uh, Rogue I'm okay with. But I look forward to seeing, you know, how things turn out. And I'm sorry if you if you hear the rain on my roof, but uh, I just wanted to get this out before I forget to send this in a message or something. But I hope you're doing well. And I hope you enjoyed X-Men number one as much as I did. Uh, but I look forward to seeing how everything turns out with that. And And hopefully they don't make a giant robot each time. See ya. Well, thank you so much uh, there, Jesse. And yeah, I I agree. I I had a weird excitement about this book as well, and I really couldn't explain exactly why. I mean, this is Marvel, right? So we get new number ones all the time. So this doesn't... This shouldn't be as special as it was here, but I think... I don't know, I don't want to over-romanticize it here, but I feel like the concept of X-Men has been kind of held captive for a little while now, you know? Uh, we haven't had a team. We didn't know we didn't have a team until X attends. But uh, the fact that now we actually have a team that is not just about Krakoa nationalism. Of course, there's the Krakoa bent to it because we're still in that era, but it's more about... Uh, protecting the world, protecting humanity, doing the whole, you know, uh, protecting the people who fear and hate them, the whole core of the X-Men book here, because I guess I've just missed rooting for these characters. Uh, They've just been so obnoxious (laughs) in the rah-rah Krakoa uh, era here that uh, it's been hard to, it's been hard to root for them. And uh, you guys know me, I'm a huge Cyclops fan here, and this is while he didn't handle the PR stuff with Ben Yurick so well, um, he also wasn't a complete chucklehead, which early in the Hickman run, he was very much depicted as the goofy sitcom dad, and I did not care for that at all. So it's a, it's a nice return to form here. Our characters are a little bit of a mishmash, but uh, I, I enjoyed seeing them work together in this first issue, and I look forward to seeing them uh, mature as a team. But uh, let's continue with Jesse here, who also sent in a letter. And he says, I sent in a voicemail, but I left out the best part of X-Men number one. The funny thing is that it's about a non-X-Men character. Ben Yurick popping in to do some investigative reporting about seeing mutants showing up who were dead, including one that he reported on himself being killed. I will not mention who it is because I'm still annoyed about the gala. Let's never hear the name again. 
And yeah, you're you're right. That was a very cool bit here. And I mentioned that during the discussion of the issue where we took a character who was so sort of kind of relatively benign in Jumbo Carnation, a character, a real D-lister in, in the realm of X-Men, but maybe not so much in the realm of uh, pop culture, right? You figure if there was a, a mutant fashion designer in the real world, there would be a little bit of buzz around them, right? But when we're reading a comic book that has all mutants in it, someone like Jumbo Carnation is not all that useful and, at worst, is very, very annoying. So uh, seeing that humans, Ben Urich in particular, is picking up on is picking up on Jumbo Carnation as being like the thread to tug on. It's very interesting. And I liked his usage insofar as that. As mentioned during the discussion of X-Men number one, I wasn't a big fan of Ben Urich's article because it felt um, weirdly partisan, or I, it was completely partisan. It was uh, partisan for a weird reason. And I, I, I hate it any time that Marvel goes out of their way to crap on potentially half their readership. Uh, like I talked about during uh, Meal's uh, letter, Marvel is oddly adversarial toward their fan, ba- fan base, and I just don't understand why. Uh, Jesse continues. I'm glad that the outside world is starting to pry into why these mutants are back, and I'm surprised it's taking this long for someone to ask about it, especially when one member of the public X-Men team, Sink, died so long ago, and now here he is. How do the families of Resurrectees feel about this, or do they even know? Are the Thomases sitting at home watching TV when they see their son appear on the screen? I mean, he should still be about 16 or 17, right? Or do they age up their resurrected mutants? Too many questions, but I also miss asking all the questions like we did at first. And yeah, you know, I think I tried to lampshade this during the discussion of X-Men number one, where it's like, I mean, the people of the Marvel Universe, the, the random citizen of, uh, of the 616, they see heroes die and come back all the time. Right, So I think when they see a Cyclops who was dead come back, it's like they accept it because, ah, he's a superhero. He came back. Captain America dies and comes back. Wolverine dies and comes back. Everybody dies and comes back. But when you take a character like Jumbo Carnation, who is not a superhero, he's a mutant but not a superhero who dies and comes back, it might... It might rustle a few uh, feathers and might cause an itch in the back of the brain for uh, a regular, regular old normie of the 616. So it's another reason why I was so jazzed to see see them take that angle. Because even someone like Sink here, he's a superhero. So if he dies and comes back, it's just, okay, well, there's another one who died and came back. That's actually, actually, it's not something I want to read. I was going to say it's something I would love to read, just seeing the... Uh, the regular person's point of view on people dying and coming back to life in the superhero realm, but I feel like that could be a very uh, navel-gazy and unpleasant-to-read story. Uh, Another deconstructive uh, bit of comic storytelling that we may not need (laughs) at this point. Uh, Jesse continues. I'm excited to see the ramifications of mutants having this ability to bring back their dead when the rest of the world cannot. I'm more excited to see if my theory of them resurrecting Wanda because she is a mutant will pay off. There you go. That was one of my theories there. I tried to keep that one close to the vest because I didn't want to influence anybody's uh, thoughts here. But that was kind of the way I thought they might wriggle their way out of the trial of Magneto. It's like, well, let's try to bring her back. And if she comes back, you know, it's the whole you know Salem witch trials thing here. If she comes back, she's a mutant. And therefore, Magneto did not kill a human. So... There you go. That's uh, that's one way out of it, and uh, I guess we can retcon the fact that maybe he knew all along, or maybe they have something different planned for us. Now, Jesse wraps up with, well, thanks for the show, and I hope you and your wife are well and beating the heat. See ya. Well, thank you so much for calling in and writing in, Jesse, and uh, as far as the heat's concerned, at least relatively speaking, it hasn't really been much of a thing. <laughs> I think today... We're only going to, and, and I say only, we're only going to be at like 91 degrees or something like that. So it's definitely uh, not August weather out here. Usually we're in the hundred and teens right now. So feels like we're getting a year off, which of course has everything to do with the fact that we have a swimming pool this year. So what are you going to do? <laughs> but uh, thank you so, so much for writing in and calling in, Jesse. It's very, very cool to hear from you. Now let's wrap up with some shout-outs here. I missed the shout-outs over the past couple days since we had all that news to discuss. But I do want to name-drop some folks who supported the show on Twitter and Facebook. Let's start with Twitter. 
Joe Crawford, Professor Frenzy, Chris Bailey, my buddy Dave at Lava Hog, Jeremiah, Ed Moore, The Scary Stuff Podcast, Luke Hollywood, Selling Out Show, Ruth and Darren Sutherland, Peter Callum, Damien, the Between the Pages blog, and Billy D. Thank you all so much for clicking the heart and clicking on the little spinny thing. It really, really means a lot to me. Over to Facebook, Walt Nealon, Pat Sampson, Andrew Franklin, John Paul Thibodeau Scott, Evan Bevins, Billy D, Jesse DeJong, and Jeremiah. Thank you guys for supporting the show and taking that extra step in, uh, in clicking the thumbs up. It uh, probably shouldn't mean as much to me as it does, but uh, trust me when I say <laughs> it means a lot to me. So thank you so much for supporting the show. Now, speaking of which, if you'd like to write in and uh, say hello or give your thoughts or any of that sort of stuff, you could do so very easily. You could find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You could shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Or, like Jesse, you can call into the X-Lapsed voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. Now, for blog posts and show notes and also a place you can leave comments, that's chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can join us on Facebook. The little group is 90s X-Men, where we're talking about a whole lot of stuff, including and especially the departure of our head of X and what that might mean to the line moving forward. Finally, for all your Chris and Reggie listening needs, you can head to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available everywhere the internet aggregates noise. With all that said, I want to thank you all so much for spending your time with me today. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. Oh